You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. My guests today are Mike Tassie and Rich Perkins, both security experts who have worked both inside and outside of government. Uh, They are also the creators and designers of the Wireless Aerial Surveillance Platform, which is the new artifact that they've given to the International Spy Museum, and it is a cyber drone. Welcome, both of you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. Thanks for having us. us. So your drone uh, is unique in in many respects. Uh, Not only is it wonderfully bright yellow and now in our lobby here at the Spy Museum, uh, but it really connects two important hot-button issues, at least for... Uh, today's time, and that is, of course, drones and cyber. What gave you the idea to bring these two things together? Well, honestly, it started pretty innocently. I was uh, looking at remote control uh, aircraft, and I saw uh, an article on on a website uh, that's sort of a DIY website, and a guy had made a uh, uh, RC plane and put a camera on it and hacked together his own uh, first-person view system and and you know there's video of him launching fireworks at small children and making them run away and I thought oh that's so cool I have to do that uh, and so naturally when I have anything uh, harebrained uh, to do I call Rich and I and I say uh, hey Rich let's do this and that's that's when really the ball got rolling um, yeah we talked about it for I don't know probably two or three hours that first phone call and discussed you know well. You know, I, at the time, I, I owned a radio control hobby shop, and I said, Mike, if you want to, you know, strap a camera to an airplane, it's been done. I got an airplane and a camera sitting right here. I'll get some duct tape. We'll be done in 10 minutes. We should really, you know, if we're going to do something, let's do something a little cooler than that. And, and, and you know, it started out, you know, well, we'll run uh, a war driving program and do war flying. And then that kind of expanded through the course of the conversation of, well, if we're going to do that, why don't we add you know, the entire penetration testing suite onto the aircraft. And it just, it's just started to snowball into the conversation of, of different things that we could do. And, um, you know, to, to be honest, we re- really never sat on a single idea. It just kind of, as we built the, the airframe and put it together, things kind of morphed, even right up until the last year after we went to DEFCON 18 and saw uh, Christian Pageant's GSM presentation and decided that we needed to add the, the GSM component to the aircraft. Yeah, that really was sort of the sort of the uh, the pivotal moment for us. Um, 
we saw that that presentation and said, you know, that's that's custom made. That needs to be on our airplane, um, and that really got us uh, doubled down on the idea, and, and we started working in earnest uh, to get that you know fully developed, and that and that actually resulted in what's hanging in your lobby. So, for for those of you who haven't had the chance to, to take a look on the website and to see what uh, this platform looks like, essentially it's a six foot by six foot yellow and black uh, styrofoam drone. It was made uh, repurposed at, from an army targeting drone, uh, which makes it very light, you know, about 14 pounds with all batteries and everything attached. Uh, but inside of it is a very advanced, certainly for a couple of years ago, you might disagree with how advanced it is today, uh, cyber package that allows the drone to do different things. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what the capabilities um, of the cyber package are? Sure. So uh, um, onboard the aircraft is a, a you know basically a, a small computer, about a one gigahertz processor, roughly equivalent to what uh, about a year ago was netbook equivalent. You buy at Best Buy, and connected to that were a couple of different payloads. There's a, a wireless uh, Wi-Fi card essentially that allows the the aircraft to both sniff and actively attack open and password protected Wi-Fi. Uh, hotspots. There's uh, Bluetooth capability on to to sniff Wi-Fi tra- or Bluetooth traffic of you know your Bluetooth headsets, your Bluetooth cell phones, whatever. And then there's the uh, GSM capability. I'll let Mike speak to that a little bit better. So the, so you know that the last year of development was really sort of around how to tie that in, uh, and and what it is. Uh, it's it's a it's a box that's known as an IMSI catcher. I am SI catcher. Uh, and, and what it does is fool phones uh, to camp over as if it were a legitimate cell tower. So the, the whole idea behind that device is to, is to capture cell phones, to be able to record uh, phone calls, reroute numbers, uh, decode SMS messages, uh, and that sort of thing. And so that was, that was a challenge our, our last year. Uh, and so now with it uh, you know, being finished, uh, that's the, uh, the, the main selling point of the drone, I guess, recently is that, it, that, it's, uh, that it's capable of of attacking not not only just your wireless networks but also the mobile phones that we carry on a daily basis. Yeah, so so you could be you you could have the drone autonomously flying a racetrack pattern over a city or somewhere and anyone below their phones, their computers could be vulnerable to being hacked. Uh, their conversations listened to, their text messages downloaded, their emails downloaded all from a drone that doesn't need a pilot actually to fly it because once you get in the air it's fully autonomous. Well, there's the uh, the pivotal piece is that it uh, relies on a fundamental flaw in the way GSM works, and GSM is your your edge um, cell service. Uh, you know, if you're AT and T and T-Mobile, uh, you use GSM as a like a roaming. Um, in that, the cell phone is required to authenticate to the tower to prove that that's your cell phone, so they know who to send the bill to. But nothing in that infrastructure requires the cell tower to authenticate to the cell phone. So it's trivial to pretend to be a cell phone and or a cell tower, and cell phones will just connect without any problem at all. <laughs> so, so, for those people who are listening to this or instantly thinking, this if you did it in the middle of Washington D.C., the two of you would be arrested in about ten seconds. What you created was potentially very illegal, but you didn't do it to mess around with anybody. What was your purpose in actually building this drone? So the idea behind the drone was, was one, it was a, a technological challenge for us. We're both uh, geeks down to the core, and so you know, 
many people had said that this is a this is too steep of a hill to climb. This is this is not something we could do, and so that was our primary motivation. I think our primary motivator was you'll never make that work. Yeah, that was uh, that in in as a historian in the ten fifteen thousand years of history I can think back to that was a prime motivator for a whole lot of people. So y'all are in good position there. But the, uh, the but the you know the underlying message was that. Um, that a lot of what we take for granted in our lives is, has fundamental issues that we need to be aware of. And, it, and getting people to talk about um, the vulnerabilities that exist and how we should modify our behavior uh, to, to, with the understanding of how this makes us vulnerable and could impact our privacy was another one of the factors, was, hey, look at, uh, look at this new sort of uh, threat that, this, uh, that the preponderance of technology uh, has resulted in you know we uh, you know we think about the bugs on our on our computer systems we think about uh, you know viruses and and other such things uh, but the internet has brought together a lot of uh, of parallel technologies that can be easily glued together to do really incredible things and uh, one of the things that that we had talked about is that this is this really isn't an area that a lot of folks are looking at uh, we tend to pigeonhole down to a specific technology and not look at it from a holistic view. Well, I mean, I'm very grateful that you two had the idea for this and showed people that this was a possibility because if you two were kind of shady characters, uh, you could have really taken advantage of this without, but of course you you actually premiered this in 2011 at the Black Hat Conference, which is a a hacker convention, if that's a better way of saying it. Um, And you let people know what was going on. Has that had any repercussions as far as the direction that drone making or the, the marriage of drone and cyber has gone since then? You know, I think the, probably the, the, the single thing that I think uh, defines the impact that that, uh, that that presentation had is that I'm now starting to see uh, uh, wireless protection uh, devices that are being built with options for detecting drone activity yeah, uh, to protect um, business. Uh, Aruba. So there's, there's various organizations out there that are, that are actually including... Uh, looking for drones and the, the drone attack vector in their uh, in their business models. Wow. So I, I think I, I think that was sort of a wake up moment for me when I go to a convention and I see now detects drones on right. the no, <laughs> on the list. I go, wow, you know, maybe people really were listening. Well, and I, I'd like to think too that uh, you know, drone the drone community was doing a lot of work before kind of before we stepped in and, and made our drone, but we kind of brought a spotlight to it and the capabilities. And I think uh, timing-wise, you know, now the FAA is having to relook at commercial use of, of personal drones and uh, drones for business. And, you know, we were kind of at the forefront of that. You know, I don't know that we had a, that we were directly responsible, but I think we kind of kick-started that process. So we're starting to see a lot of change in that area as well. Well, it was a lot of people see drones. They, they're thinking of, like, the Predator shooting hellfires over in Iraq or somewhere or the Global Hawk, which is huge you know state sponsored drones or you know these ones that cost millions and millions of dollars but potentially certainly if i talk about vulnerability for the united states which we're not too worried about a chinese or a russian drone flying into washington we would see it coming far away and it would be something the chinese and even the russians aren't dumb enough to do but the potential of off the shelf or even privately built drones small ones ones that cost far less i mean i think you told me that your drone cost you about six thousand dollars or so to put together, uh, that's the real threat that people are thinking about. Yeah, and, and now you can probably build uh, a, a more capable drone for about half the cost. I would imagine, yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, some of the, the, the ramifications uh, from 
we all face a constant threat of terrorism. Uh, and they're a crafty bunch of people that look for non-traditional ways uh, to conduct asymmetric warfare. Uh, they're never going to be able to stand up to our military uh, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one situation. So they're looking for ways to maximize their advantage, and, and, and they use the media and they use public messaging to, uh, to generate fear. And, and you know, these types of technologies, we have to be aware, give these organizations and these, these folks that, that want to do bad things avenues to potentially do them. Well, we, we were chatting before we, we sat down to record this formally, and you had talked about the idea that your drone has about a 10-pound payload. Mm -hmm. And I, immediately, we even talked about this, but immediately I thought of all the different ways that 10 pounds of something could be a real problem for, uh, you know, a civilian society, a city, you know, with 10 pounds of just TNT could be problematic if you're targeting a person or a small group of people. But you even brought up the idea of, you know, 10 pounds of cesium-135 or strontium-90 or some kind of spent fuel could create a very cheap homemade dirty bomb. Um, you know, you know, or, and I think you had brought this up, Rich, the idea of even putting things that are completely uh, safe, completely benign as far as their damage could have a psychological impact that could cause just real problems. You mentioned the idea um, I'll let you tell about the Super Bowl potentially. Yeah, just just taking something, you know, bright yellow aircraft, or, or um, and crashing it on the the 50-yard line of a super of a Super Bowl game or a, a major media event um, filled with nothing nothing more than baking soda and vinegar and green dye, so that it foams and makes you know noise and turns green and, and causes panic. In this day and age of you know terrorism anywhere, the sheer panic that would ensue would would kill and injure more people than, than anything else. But you know, let's not forget the good things that the the drone can do. I mean, this is it's not all about the scare tactics of you know oh my God the drones are going to come and get me. But there's a lot of really good uses for cheap drone technology. I mean, there's everything from search and rescue. Everybody carries a cell phone these days, and that IMEI number that Mike talked about from the IMSI catcher is uniquely identifiable to you. Well, if you're missing, we can find you based on that number. Um, you know, natural disasters like Katrina, where it wipes out the infrastructure and no one has cell phones, or, or uh, Sandy in, in New York. Um, being able to put up, you know, 10 or 15 of these drones, it three, four thousand dollars a piece and re temporarily restore the cellular infrastructure so that folks that are in those disaster areas can get messages out to their families and loved ones and let them know that they're okay. I mean, you wouldn't be able to establish, you know, long distance phone calls for tens of thousands of people, but text messages is, is it goes a long ways when you have no communications. Or for, for example, radio broadcasts, you know, uh, for the emergency broadcasting system, that's a, you know, another you know, possible use. Or uh, in agriculture, um, you know, farmers uh, being able to do aerial, aerial surveillance of crops to, uh, you know, to assess water damage or pesticides or fertilization. Those things are all really positive things that the same technology can be employed. Uh, the only difference being, and, and, and this is one of the things that I, that I like to tell people about drones, is that they're just tools. They're just like a hammer or a wrench or any other tool. It, it's really the intent of the person using it that determines whether or not you're going to have a, a, you know, a, a bad outcome or not. Well, and what's really great about I mean, the drone that you've created, and I, I assume about a lot of the newer ones, or maybe even more so about some of the newer ones, is the autonomous nature of it. To where, as part of the, uh, uh, the exhibit here, you'll see that below the drone, there's a, a small yellow box, the ground control station, that... Once you get it up in the air, you can computer program it to fly on its own. 
And so you're in a situation, I'm thinking of firefighters or something during Katrina, you don't actually have to dedicate manpower to someone sitting there with remote controls flying around. If you're search and rescue, you can still have your guys on the ground searching, and the drone, because it's fully computerized and automated, can be doing the work for you in the air. And I think that's one of the more interesting things that you've created here or that you've demonstrated. Yeah, we, we talked about, uh, you know, version two or phase two of the project of, of looking into some of the, the infrared camera technology. Like I think uh, at the time Jaguars had them on the front of the, the car where they put the heads up display with infrared and using that for search and rescue and combining that with, you know, things like facial recognition software, which has come a long ways. And if you were to fly over an, you know, an open uh, forested area looking for, a, you know, the shape of a human um, to help find someone or to help locate someone, um, you know, the, the ability of the technology is, is essentially limitless. It's just what you want to put on the aircraft and what you want to use it for. There's a, there, there's a lot of areas, you know, I, I've heard it mentioned a couple of times, and I, and I think that, uh, and I think that it's, it's poignant. They say that drones are best used for, for jobs that are dull, dirty, or dangerous. And I think that that's absolutely correct. The autonomous nature of them allows you to just cut sort of fire and forget and still get that product that you need uh, to inform your manned activities. And so, you know, from that perspective, there were, I think the sky's the limit in terms of how they can be employed in the future. We already hinted at this a little bit, but the FAA is going to be going to have a big voice in the future of drones. What, what is the current status of that? Well, can you lay down what, what are the, 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 the problems potentially with, I mean, the FAA has some real interesting decisions to make, and they certainly could either stand in the way of a real revolution in drone use or they could help it along. Where are we uh, when it comes to the drone technology? There? So, so I look at the FAA's problem as twofold. Um, you have the civilian use of drones you know, from your, from your hobbyist and non-commercial uh, perspective, and that I think is pretty well in hand. As long as folks you know, adhere to the already established standards, uh, you know, if, you know, 400 feet or lower in line of sight, those th- sort of things. I think that that is pretty well a, a problem that's been self-policed by the community. Uh, the problem is when you get some outliers, this, you know, statistical guys that want to, uh, to fly their drones up into the approach path at LaGuardia or, or some other uh, situation. And that, that, that's the other problem, which I think is a much bigger quandary for the FAA, and that's how to integrate these unmanned systems into national airspace. Um, and there they face a much more difficult road because some of the benefit of drones is that they're cheaper. Uh, and when you start talking about how do you integrate a drone into the national airspace, that uh, economy of scale starts to disappear because they have to be licensed and you, there's a, a, a large regulatory overhead involved in, in getting one of those systems in the air. Uh, and so... Well, they also have to be... Uh, a lot of the, what the AFAA is doing is tracking this through radar, and a lot of these drones don't have a radar signature big enough to be full tracked. And they, you know, they don't have things like transponders and you know, the ability to sense other aircraft in proximity and avoid them yet. So I think that you know, I don't envy their position in terms of how you know, difficult that's going to be, but, uh, but it's definitely something that's going to need to happen. Well, and I think the, the yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think the other issue is beyond the, the hobby grade is the commercial. I mean, the commercial uses for drones, we've already seen, you know, Amazon come out and say, we're going to use, you know, drones to deliver packages in the next 10 years. Um, is the FAA really going to stand in the way of that type of innovation by saying, nope, you can't use them for commercial? They have to come up with a way to say, okay, if you're going to use them commercially, here are the rules and guidelines for how they can be used 
Um, and, and again, that's they've got a tough road ahead of them. I mean, do, do you see that happening? Mean, is that is that something that those within the drone community are seeing as a inevitable next step, or is there real a possibility that the, the drone revolution is halted, at least the civilian drone revolution, is halted before it fully gets started. I don't think you're going to halt the civilian drone revolution. I mean, it's it's out there. It's it's in the wild. It's it's growing naturally now. Um, you're not going to stop it. It's it's it's. A you know, I mean, there there are going to be bumps along the way. Um, you know, to use the Amazon example, uh, you know, the first time an Amazon drone hovering over someone's doorstep to, to drop a package, you know, some four-year-old runs out the front door to try to hug this thing. It, 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 there's going to be some, some, some learning curve associated with this. And so, you know, it, from, from that perspective, the commercial use of drones, I think you're going to see some regulation that might, uh, that might kind of restrain some of the fast movers, uh, the, the Amazons of the world and, and the folks delivering beer to, to, uh, to ice fishermen. <laughs> there may there may be some 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 pulling on the reins on on some of the uh, the forward movement there, but I think ultimately, uh, you know, if we can do it safely and we can innovate and provide services and goods that people really want, that there's no reason that the FAA should stand in the way of that. Until the minute a drone company calls itself Skynet, and then everyone uh, <laughs> starts getting really really worried. <laughs> I for one welcome yes. our robotic overlords. <laughs> So, so what's next for the two of you? You've already hinted at the idea that you're thinking about Drone 2.0 or whatever the next generation is going to be. Um, I, you actually, th th for, for disclosure, uh, you live in different states, but you're, you're close collaborators on a lot of things that you work on. Is there anything, not to give away any secrets that's going to be uh, at Black Hat 2016 or whatever, but are, are you thinking of, of working together in anything coming up in the future? It's kind of odd. We, we, we tend to come together and, and build some ridiculous project, and then there's about a, a two- to three-year gap. And, and my significant other has already commented on it's, you know, it's been about three years. When are you and Mike going to build something new? And, you know, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it's going to be. We, we usually, you know, it's not a, hey, we should, you know, we should really plan this out. It's usually spontaneous. And well, yeah, it sounds like this one was about as spontaneous as I get, so, yeah. You know, usually starts with Mike and calling me on the phone and says, dude, I got an idea. And, and it just goes from there. Those are always the dangerous words, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and I know and we have been doing, you know, we've been continuing to be active in the drone community. Uh, Rich has continued a lot of work on some of the sensor platforms. So there's, there's new uh, technology wrapped into uh, sort of the second version of, of the payload that's in, that's in the, uh, the, the drone downstairs. Uh, and there's new work in, in airframes as, as technology is advancing. We're looking at other forms. Uh, you know, we have a fixed wing version, which you're, you're familiar with. And then uh, we're looking at other types of like multi-rotors and, and other uh, form factors that we can apply the same type of technology to. And, uh, you know, droppable sensor platforms is another uh, another way relaying through the drone uh, the, the data. There's some, you know, other sort of more outlandish uses that we that we've been working on so you haven't heard the last of us but uh but uh you know the what the future holds right now we're we're not 100 percent. i think what's incredible is if you built the drone that is in the lobby today and you wanted to give it the exact same specifications as far as capabilities is concerned how different would it look how much cheaper would it be i mean i well there's there's pieces of it that would definitely be cheaper i mean like mike alluded to i've i've kind of rebuilt the the entire uh, you 
know, cyber payload, as it were. It's sitting on my desk at home, and it's, you know, one-third the size and uh, probably twice as much capacity and capability. Much more power efficient. Much more power efficient. Um, so on, on one side, that piece would be cheaper, but lessons learned from building the aircraft. You know, the, the MIG platform that we chose, uh, we chose it because I had it. It was made of styrofoam. We could cut on it with steak knives and razor blades and glue it back together with epoxy. And when we crashed it, it broke and we glued it back together and it still flew. Um, knowing what we know now and having some experience under our belts, we'd actually probably spend more money on a, on a more uh, glide-efficient airframe, something that could stay aloft much longer with much less power. Uh, unfortunately, that would cause the price to go up from free to you know a thousand bucks or more depending on the airframe so uh, i think it would look significantly different um you know we really use that that styrofoam mig platform as a prototype i mean there's things that we did and then undid and redid and changed and, and the only reason we could do that was because it was made out of styrofoam and it was such a uh, a great prototyping platform well and you can certainly see the uh the impact from your your crash test uh, <laughs> on the on the uh, the artifact. Uh, it's not something that we did here in the museum. I mean, it's it's great because you can actually you had a little fun with it too. I think you put little stitches. Put little stitches on the on the the, bur the cracks in it. Yes. And there's uh, there's uh, when the online exhibit you'll see that there's a you put a GoPro or a small camera uh, on and you actually had a, that was a successful test. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have the video of the crash. <laughs> yes. No, we did. We actually didn't have a camera on it. We didn't think to videotape it, and uh, it was uh, it was pretty impressive. It went down the runway, and it looked really cool. The antenna on the the, the airplane were all folded back, and a gust of wind picked it up, and it went about thirty feet up in the air into a a, a, a Himmelman or a hammerhead yeah, hammerhead stall. Hammerhead stall. Bold move. <laughs> Turn, flipped over and, and, I mean, propeller straight into the ground from about 30 feet up at full throttle. I thought I, I was, uh, we, we had a test pilot that, uh, from the local flying club that was doing it the first time. And, uh, and uh, I remember thinking to myself, wow, this guy is really confident. You know, he just, <laughs> and then it just stopped and my heart sank. And I was like, uh oh, this is going to be bad. It was, I mean, it was, it was really depressing when it happened. Um, but we learned a lot of valuable information uh, about the aircraft and, and what needed to be done. You know, we had, uh, that airframe itself is actually used quite extensively by the, the radio RC community as a, as a hobby-grade aircraft to fly because it is so easy to put together. So we followed their instructions for getting it flight ready. Well, their flight instructions don't take into account that, we have a 10 pound payload to carry into the air. So we were, you know, the propeller was a, a I think a 13 inch propeller instead of a, a 17 inch propeller. We were woefully underpowered and we had the center of gravity um, too perfect on the center of gravity of the aircraft. So it made it very unstable. So when the wind caught it, it just flipped it over. Um, we learned a lot about right. aeronautical engineering in a very short 30 foot span of, of Time and well, space. And I mean, that's, that's been kind of our, our mantra all along is you, you don't learn anything from success. Right. You learn from failure and how you so pick we are learning yes. at this point. <laughs> you have a PhD in that at this point. Uh, well, I think, I mean, that's, that's has to be true. I mean, we, we have a lot of really interesting technology in this museum as far as like spy artifacts or other things like that. And, and the vast majority of them, if not almost every one of them, 
uh, went through several different iterations of trial and error before they were successfully, or in some cases, they even when they were put into practice, they were still unsuccessful. But uh, as you can see on the uh, the online exhibit, you had a very successful fi you know, final test run where it flew, uh, and it flew well. Uh, and of course, your cyber package works like a charm. So uh, congratulations. I mean, um, this is one of those things that you know, when we we talked here in the museum about you know whether or not this made sense. It wasn't a very long conversation. It was like, what do you mean it's a drone that does? Yeah, it does both. It's drone and cyber. Of course, it's a no-brainer. Uh, and and so we we want to thank you again for not only uh, giving us this drone to put in the lobby of our museum, but also taking the time out today to come talk to us. And uh, so Rich and Mike, uh, thank you for taking the time and thank you for coming to the National Spy Museum. It's our pleasure. Thank, thank you so very much. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.